Thank you, Rhonda, for reading for us. Um, guys, as we get started, I want to encourage you to follow along this morning. Something we do that we probably don't say often enough here is that, um, generally speaking, our main text we do not put on the screen because we want you guys to um, bring your Bibles or on your phone or whatever and just kind of follow along there where you sit. Any satellite verses, verses outside our main text will be on the screen, but we're going to be jumping around a lot in Luke chapter 1. So if you don't have that open yet, I encourage you to turn there so that you can follow along with us. And so today we're going to be talking about the story of John the Baptist as it relates to the story of Advent and the coming of Christ. And so the person of John the Baptist gets a lot of attention in our New Testament. He's really a pretty prominent uh, figure as far as that goes. Both Mark and Luke begin their Gospels with an account of John the Baptist. And it's almost as if they think the, you know, the story of the coming of Jesus starts not with, not with Mary, but with Zachariah and Elizabeth and the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, the other two Gospels, Matthew and John, also give a good chapter or two to John the Baptist, just not at the very front. So he's mentioned his story by all four Gospel writers as a part of the story of Jesus. Um, and so I want to read as we begin just a, a small quote from a commentator that I studied this week talking about the significance of John the Baptist and the part he plays in our New Testament um, as that's historically seen by the church. So it says this, as the early Christians looked back on what God had done through Jesus Christ, they realized that it had all started with John the Baptist. He was the forerunner, the herald sent ahead to announce the coming of the Christ. In ancient prophecies, God had promised that before the Messiah came, his messenger would prepare the way. John the Baptist was the man who got people ready for Jesus. So just so you know kind of where we're going this morning, we're going to spend the, um, the first bit of our time, most of it really, talking about just the story of John the Baptist, his birth, what that looked like, what that meant, how that prepares us and relates to Jesus. Then we're going to talk about um, the life and ministry of John the Baptist, what his ministry was like as he, as he grew, um, and make some uh, observations and applications at the end of that. And so let's just kind of back up again and just tell the story of his birth. First of all, there was a, an announcement of his birth by the angel Gabriel. And this comes, if you'll remember from last week, this announcement to, to Zechariah from Gabriel comes on the heels of 400 years of silence, 400 years of God's people not really hearing from him. And just not to overstate that, right, we would say there was probably some individuals that God maybe revealed things to, or obviously God was still working in and among his people, convicting of sin, things like that. But in terms of kind of a thus saith the Lord to the people type prophecy, we'd been 400 years without any of that. So we talk about the 400 years of silence leading up to Jesus's uh, birth. But really what we see in our text today is that silence was broken, not, not initially to Mary, but initially to Zechariah as an angel appeared to John the Baptist's dad to say, hey, you're going to have a child and he is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. So let's read that in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, 
walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So as we kind of wrap our minds around the setting that Luke has given us, I want to stop for a second and consider what that must have been like for Elizabeth. Most of us have had times in our life when we encountered some sort of struggle, something bad happened to us. And we began to question, is this bad thing that's happening, is this struggle being introduced into my life a result of some kind of sin I've committed? Right? Is this, is this struggle I'm going through somehow a, a punishment because I did this bad thing that now I'm having to deal with this? And Scripture would tell us that sometimes that is true, that sometimes our sins, we make bad decisions, and there's just natural consequences that come along with that that might be difficult or, or cause us struggle. Um, there's other times when we make a bad decision or maybe we're, we're chasing after a sin that we've idolized and God will actually bring a loving discipline in our lives to kind of pull us away from that sin and back to him. But the scriptures also teach that, that oftentimes we run into struggles and difficulties um, simply because we live in a fallen world, right? Or you may recall Jesus' disciples looking at a blind man and asking Jesus, hey Jesus, was it this man or his parents that sinned? that he was born blind, because the assumption in that day was his blindness must be a result, a punishment for someone's sin, either him or his parents. Which was it? And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, it's not this man or his parents that sinned, that he was born blind, but that the, the works of God might be shown, that God was using the struggle to bring honor and glory to his name through what was going to happen. And so we, we understand there's this reality that when we run into struggles, yeah, sometimes that could be because of our sin or a difficulty, but but oftentimes it's just a reality of the world we live in and being in a fallen world or maybe something God is giving us as a gift that he would use to honor himself, even though it's a struggle for us at the time. And the idea of a, a woman without child in that day was the same assumption that the disciples had of the blind man. Right? Someone would have looked at Elizabeth and her barrenness, her inability to get pregnant, and the assumption would have been someone has sinned, her or someone else, maybe her husband, that has caused this iniquity, that has caused this bad thing, this struggle, this source of shame that she's now dealing with. And you can imagine how difficult that must have been because many of you, maybe you've experienced yourself or you certainly know someone who has a struggle with infertility where a man and woman are married, and the woman, for whatever reason, just has a hard time becoming pregnant. And you know the difficulties that, that might come with that. That would be hard enough in and of itself for a couple who's wanting to um, have kids in that way. Well, add to that the shame that comes out with this in this culture. So think about these two people who they've, they've been righteous before God. Now, that doesn't mean that they have never sinned, they've never made a mistake, but it means that in general... They're a family, they're a couple who is pursuing the Lord, following him, submitting to him, trying to seek him in all that they do, that they're just a good, solid, godly couple. But they've been through their whole lives unable to get pregnant, and that's a source of shame and embarrassment and difficulty for them. And then it so happens that Zechariah, towards the, probably near the end of his life, as he's an older man, is chosen to go into the temple. And so I want to explain a little bit what that looks like contextually. So it says that his division, it was their time to serve. So the way that worked is 52 weeks out of the year, in the temple, a priest was supposed to go in and burn incense. 
but because there were so many different divisions of priests, each division took two weeks out of the year. So it was the time of year when the, the division that Zechariah belonged to, it was their time to go to the temple and send someone to go in and burn incense before the Lord during that time. That was their two weeks. It was also the case that each division had way more priests than they had days to go in and burn incense. And so they had to choose among our division who's going to go for us, right? And it's also the case that whenever they did that, if you were chosen, because there were so many priests and they, just, they wanted to divide that up, once you went in and did that, that was it. So it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and, and the lot may never fall on you. Like, you may never get to do it. And we know Zechariah is advanced in years, so at this point he may have given up hope, or at least not had much hope, that he was ever going to get this honor as a priest to go in and serve and burn incense in this way. But then in his old age, the lot falls on him. It's his time to go. And so one of the things that I want us to do as we consider that story is um, something Howard Hendricks calls read imaginatively. Howard Hendricks wrote a book called Living by the Book about how to read and interpret the Bible. It's a great book. In fact, uh, Scott Sutton is taking our fifth and sixth graders through that book on Wednesday night so they can learn how to, how to read and study God's word effectively. Um, and one of the things he, he talks about in there is read imaginatively. In other words, when you see a phrase like, he went into the temple, stop for a second and say, well, what must that have been like? I mean, what did that look like? What would he have seen? What would he have heard? What, would he have, what, what might he have smelled? Like, what, what kind of experience is that like? Let's use our imagination and climb into the story. And, you know, what we imagine may not be 100% accurate, but it helps us kind of climb in and understand what's really going on. And so I did find that same commentator who wrote kind of a more descriptive version of what that could have been like for Zechariah entering into the temple. So I want to read that with you. And just kind of picture this in your mind. Talking about Zechariah, it says, he walked through the temple courts, passing through the crowds that had gathered to pray. Then he went up to the holy place where God was. And as he entered, he saw the sacred furniture that the Israelites had made according to the instructions God gave Moses on the mountain. On his left was the golden lampstand of life, flickering in the darkness. On his right was the table of bread. In front of him was the golden altar of incense, up against the curtain that guarded the entrance to the Holy of Holies. Zechariah was standing in the presence of Almighty God, burning the incense that wafted up to heaven with his prayers. His heart was pounding in his chest, and then suddenly it almost stopped. He was not alone, but in the presence of a heavenly being. Let's pick it up in Luke 1, 12. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And the angel goes on to explain what John's mission is going to be and how they're to raise him in light of that. And there's this interesting development where Zechariah doubts what the angel said, right? Because he's old, his wife is old, and this angel just told him, your wife's going to be pregnant. He's like, ah, I don't see how that's possible. 
And look what happens. Pick it up in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And it's almost like, Gabriel's almost like a little offended there, right? Like, you think I'm just some normal angel, right? Like, I'm Gabriel, dadgummit. I stand in the presence of God. What do you mean, how do you know? Because I told you, right? I was sent to speak to you and bring you this news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Gabriel says, hey, this is still going to happen, right? Just because you doubt. You're not going to erase what God's doing here. But because of your doubt, you're going to be silent and able to speak until John is born. Which that's a, man, that's a rough punishment for a vocational minister, right? Like you're going to be unable to speak. You're not going to be able to say anything for nine months. It's a long time. So I'd imagine, you know, he goes home, right? He says, you, you know, you and your wife are going to get pregnant. So I imagine he goes home and he literally whispers sweet nothings in her ear because what else can he do? Um, but I imagine him coming out of the temple, right? Like you would want to talk about that. You would want to tell someone the story of what you just saw, of what just happened. But then there's this irony of after this, after years and years of waiting to go into the temple, and then when you finally do, you get this miraculous experience, but you can't talk about it, right? That would have been pretty rough, um, especially for him as a priest. But, but in that, I want us to see an encouragement. So I'm going to kind of push pause and move into a little bit of application here. I would imagine many of us in this room, I know I would include myself in this, have had times in the faith where we have had doubts about specific promises God has given or maybe about whether or not all this is even true. And it can be tempting when we, when we experience doubts to kind of have this thought of, man, is there, is there something wrong with me? Like, I've I've built my entire life around believing this stuff is true, and now I'm questioning it? Like, that's really odd. Why is it that that's happening? Is there, is, there something, is there something wrong with me because of that? And one of the encouragements we find in Scripture is that that's not an unheard of thing. That even this guy, Zechariah, who, who is described with, there's nothing negative given about him. He's just this really godly old man who's been following the Lord his whole life and trusting him, even he has a struggle of doubt to believe this specific promise. If you look at the life of John the Baptist, you're going to see that he comes to a time at the end of his life where he struggles with some very significant doubt in regards to who Jesus is, but he spent most of his ministry pointing to Jesus, saying, behold the Lamb of God. This is the one he has come. This is God's Messiah. That guy at the end of his life has some doubt. And as I was thinking about that, a, a sermon I once heard came to mind that I think is super encouraging when in regards to how we handle the doubt we sometimes have. And I want to share that with you. It was a guy named D.A. Carson. Um, he writes a lot of commentaries and stuff. But he, he gave this sermon and he said, Imagine f- for a minute that you're in the land of Israel um, right before Moses is going to lead everyone out in the Exodus. And so it's the night before the Passover, and God has commanded everyone through Moses, hey, look, the angel of death is going to come through. I want you to take the blood of a lamb, put it on your doorpost, so that when the angel comes, he will pass over your house. And then imagine two, two Jewish guys, we'll just call them, let's come up with a random name here, uh, Scott Sutton and Lance Shoemake. Okay? So imagine two random Jewish guys sitting there talking and 
And Scott says to Lance, hey, hey, man, um, are you nervous? Like, this is, this is crazy, right? There's been a lot of crazy stuff happening to the flies and the frogs, and we've been here for 400 years, and now God's saying he's going to send the angel of death, and everyone's son is going to die? Like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. And Lance looks at Scott kind of with a confused look and says, well, I mean, you heard what Moses said, right? That as long as we put the blood on the doorpost, we're going to be fine. I mean, you did that, right? Like, you've got your bags packed, you're ready for the Passover, you're You've, slaughtered, you've, you've done all that, right? And Scott's like, of course I've done that. I'm not ignorant. I just, man, it's easy for you to say you've got two sons. I've, I've only got one, right? I mean, I, I'm just nervous about this. Like, I think it's okay for me to have a little trepidation here. This is a big deal. And I believe the promises, but I'm, I'm scared. And Lance says, man, bring it on. God has been faithful. I trust the promises of God. I trust the character of God. We're all going to be fine. And it raises this question of which of the two men lost a son that night? And of course the answer is neither. Because the grounds of God's grace are not on the tenacity or intensity of the person's faith, but the grounds of God's grace and mercy are on the blood of the Lamb. Not on the intensity of their faith, not on how much they trusted or how how much clarity they had in their faith, but the grounds of God's mercy and grace in that moment are built on the blood of the Lamb that they both shared on their doorposts. And I found that so encouraging in times when you maybe struggle with a little bit of doubt to say that the grounds of God's mercy for our lives is not on the intensity or the clarity of our faith, but on the object of our faith, the person of Jesus, his work on our behalf, his death and resurrection. So the story continues on. What happens is interesting that if you look at the timeline, it's really funny, six months after Gabriel appears to Zechariah and announces John's going to be born. So assumedly, John is conceived pretty, pretty quickly after that. Six months later, that same angel, Gabriel, appears to Mary and announces that she's going to be pregnant and informs her that her relative, Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, is also pregnant and going to have a baby, which I'm sure Mary was just as shocked by that as well, right? She's shocked because she's a virgin and shocked because Elizabeth is really old. Two, two miraculous um, pregnancies going on at the same time. And if you follow the timeline, it says then Mary went up to see Elizabeth. And we don't know if they're like aunt and niece. We don't know if they're Jesus and John the Baptist are they cousins. We just know that somehow they are related. And so people will say often Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins, just kind of a guess. Um, but anyway, she hears that. It says she goes up to see her and she stays for about three months, which kind of tells me you know, around the nine-month mark, she was like, all right, y'all have fun. I'm headed out of here, right? She wasn't going to stick around for the birth. Um, But in Luke 144, when they meet, it says that John the Baptist leapt in Elizabeth's womb. It says this, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came, this is Elizabeth talking to Mary, to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. So you can see that 
John is someone very special. It says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the moment he was conceived. And that somehow, even as an infant in the womb, he recognized or sensed the presence of Jesus. And there's this very special connection between John the Baptist and Jesus that's established even before they are born. And then eventually John the Baptist, after Mary leaves, um, is born. And there's this really kind of funny name debacle because... um, Elizabeth gives birth, and there's the people all around talking about, hey, what are, what are you going to name him? I guess they didn't announce that. They waited until the baby was born and then, and then decided. Um, and so they're doing that, like, what are you going to name this baby? And she says, well, we're going to call him John. And all the townspeople are like, I, maybe she lost a little too much blood as an 80-year-old giving birth, because that's not a family name, and you're supposed to do a family name. That, that name is nowhere in your family or she don't want to call him Zachariah or, or something else, you know. And, and they eventually, like, don't trust her. They think that she's, like, incapacit- incapable of making that decision. And so they turn to Zachariah, and they're like, hey, she's saying, John, are, are you cool with this? What are you, what's this baby's name going to be? And he can't talk, so he writes it. And he just writes very simply, his name is John, right? And it's interesting the way it's worded because it's not we're going to name him John or we are naming him John. It's like, no, we've already been told by the angel his name is John. And there's something significant to their names. And so I want to look at this with you to kind of show how the names of these people kind of, the meanings of their names kind of are significant and tell God's story. So Zechariah means God remembers. Think about this in the historical context. God remembers. He has not forgotten his people despite this 400 years of silence. Elizabeth means God is faithful. Not only God is aware, but he is still committed to his people. And then John, which is the one that God had clearly, you know, revealed to them, this will be his name, means God is merciful. And then last but not least, with the arrival of Jesus, Yeshua, we see the meaning of that is God saves. So even in these names, we see kind of a little micro picture of the gospel, right? That God remembers, God is faithful, God is merciful, and he's sending Jesus because he's going to act. Because he is mindful, and because he is faithful, because he is merciful, he is going to act to save his people through the person of Jesus. So even John's name is kind of paving the way and setting up Jesus for his life and his work. Um, so then Zechariah finally speaks, right? After nine months of silence, his tongue is loosed and he's able to speak. And his, the first words he gives after that silence are amazing because the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he just kind of shouts out this poem or this song. And I want to read part of that with you. Luke chapter 1, verse 76, talking about John the Baptist. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So for the rest of our time, we're going to look at the ministry of John the Baptist. Um, And there's really three things we're going to look at. Number one, he was what we call the new Elijah. And you may have heard you know, some of that before, that the idea that John the Baptist is Elijah or is like Elijah. Um, one of the main places that comes from is Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which in our scriptures is the last 
uh, verse leading into the New Testament, last verse in the Old Testament. And it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And that's, that's written way after Elijah, the person, has come and gone. So there's kind of this odd thing of like, what does that mean? Is, is Elijah was taken up? Is Elijah himself coming back or like reincarnated as some, some other person, right? And what the New Testament clearly teaches us is that John the Baptist is not actually, literally, Elijah himself, but someone who came kind of in the same spirit and in the same manner as Elijah with a similar mission as kind of a sign to God's people that the Messiah is about to come. Luke chapter 1, 16 says it this way about John the Baptist. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And we see in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus actually affirms this and says, yes, he is Elijah who was to come. Um, so let's look at a couple similarities and why, why the scriptures compare or link the two people, Elijah and John the Baptist. Number one is they both lived in the wilderness. They were both like these kind of eccentric, wild people who lived away from society. Um, even in their clothes, they both wore animal skins and a leather belt. So this real rough, simple way of even what they wore. Um, number three, they both spoke out against evil kings. Both of them, when, they're, when they were, um, I guess, prophets, you could say, during their time of ministry, um, you know, you had two very evil kings at that time. Um, and then both of their lives were sought by evil queens. So you have, you know, Herod's wife demanding the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And then with Elijah, you have Queen Jezebel, who made it her personal mission to seek and destroy his life. Um, and then both also had a very significant moment of doubt. We already talked about John the Baptist. Elijah had a similar thing right after the whole thing with Mount Carmel, um, you know, uh, showing up the prophets of Baal, and then Jezebel makes this decree of, I am going to kill that guy. And he gets scared, and he runs, and he has um, a very significant struggle with doubt. And so John the Baptist came in that same spirit with a lot of similarities as a sign that God was sending this kind of new Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. Second thing we see about John's ministry, um, well, before we, um, before we put it on the screen here, uh, it's there, that's okay. He's the goot. Let me explain what that means. Um, so there's, uh, there's a lot of debate going on in the sports world about the goat, you know, Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, whatever, like greatest of all time. And we can't necessarily say who the greatest of all time in the kingdom of God is uh, other than obviously Jesus. Um, but we do know who the goot is, the greatest of old times, okay? Um, because Jesus himself said, among those born among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom is greater than he, right? So in other words, Jesus is kind of dividing a line between the old covenant before Jesus and after Jesus. And he says, of those born among women, right, not those born of the spirit after, after the cross, but of all the Old Testament prophets and, and, uh, and uh, people and leaders, there is none greater than John the Baptist. So he has secured for himself the title of the Goot, um, the greatest of old times. So um, number three, uh, John the Baptist is an announcer. We've already talked about that, read about it, right? He's preparing the way. He's calling God's people to return to him. 
One of the key phrases he gave is that one is coming after me who is greater than I, whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to tie, that he's preparing the way of Jesus. And as we think about that as his mission, I want us to take the rest of our time and just consider the humility of John the Baptist, because it's really cool um, and really challenging. And so remember when Jesus, you know, when we're going through Matthew, just how threatened the Pharisees were by Jesus, right? Because Jesus was stealing their thunder Everyone's attention was going to Jesus instead of them. It's like they, they, he was taking their clout, their influence, their authority. It was all being redirected to Jesus, and they hated him for that. I mean, they couldn't stand it. It's eventually what led to them wanting to crucify him. Um, but we see such a stark contrast with John the Baptist. What we see is him not only welcoming, but rejoicing in Jesus taking his followers and taking the, the influence and stuff he had because John the Baptist began his ministry. And it's interesting because the two almost, you would almost expect there to be a rivalry there, right? If you look at their, the situations of their birth and their ministry, it's like, it's almost like kind of two twin brothers coming up at the same time and you expect it to be like a battle for who's going to be king, right? Who's going to be, who's going to get the upper hand? Um, both of their births were foretold by Gabriel, right? They're both related. Both of them were um, conceived miraculously to women who should not by any physical way have been able to be pregnant. Um, and both of them were given a very specific mission. But rather than a rivalry, John sees his role as very secondary to that of Jesus and accepts that gladly. Look at this in John chapter 3, verse 25. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, talking about Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. That was your thing. You're John the Baptist. Now he's doing it. He is baptizing. And all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And I love that response. Because their, their expectation here is John's going to be upset, right? Like, hey, John, you've built this crowd, you've built this following, you've kind of made your name for yourself with the whole baptism thing. You've got this ministry, God is using you right in this unique way. But now, you know, a, a lot of people, I mean, not me, I'm, I'm still, I'm with you, John, right? But a lot of people are going over to see this guy, Jesus. He's stealing your thunder. He's stealing your followers. The attention, the spotlight is shifting, like, what are you going to do about this? Maybe expect him to say something bad about Jesus? I don't know what they're expecting, but they're expecting him to be upset, that that's not going to be good news to him. And the first thing he says is, basically, look, anything I've done, right, anything God has used me for, it's not, I can't be, I can't be proud of that because I didn't do it. A person can, can receive nothing unless it's given to him from on high. And what a cool challenge for us about anything we would be prideful of in our accomplishments, whether it's in our family with our kids or in ministry, that like maybe God has used you in a significant way to raise some godly kids or to have some sort of impactful ministry among others. And it can be tempting to kind of see that, you know, like maybe your kids are saying a lot of the right answers in classrooms and you're tempted to kind of go, yeah, that's what, that's what the Martins do, you know. But instead, John the Baptist says, I can't take credit for anything good that has happened. 
Because all good and perfect things come straight from God and are not a result of any accomplishment or accolade that I could have achieved on my own. And I tried to kind of set up those three observations in a way that he's, you know, he's the new Elijah, he's the Goot. John the Baptist, he's just an announcer, just like us. He's someone whose core function and purpose is just simply to point people to Jesus. And so he wasn't sad or disappointed when he faded into the background. In fact, he thought it was a good thing. He said, hey, he must become greater, I must become less. So I just want to challenge us with that. So let's get that last verses there, 28 through 30 in that, in that um, section. John said, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. In other words, Jesus is the bridegroom coming for his bride. Right, that the, that the bride, the church, their attention should be on the bridegroom. They are for him, that is his people. And John says, the friend of the bridegroom, John the Baptist, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. And I gotta think that one of the reasons John was able to accept that is because he knew his own limitations, right? He knew that, like, whatever you're coming with, whatever problems and sin these people have, that he's, John is speaking to them, calling them to repent, John, at the end of the day, knows he cannot save them from their sins, right? Like, whatever problems the people listening to me have in my ministry, like, I myself am not the answer. I can do nothing to accept the punishment for their sins, to save them from their sins, to absolve them and see that they are forgiven. All I can do is point them to the one who can. That's a good reminder for any of those of us in ministry is that we are not the hope, we are not the answer, right? But we know the guy who is. And all we're doing, hopefully, is trying to point people to him and how great he is and how sufficient he is to solve all of our problems. We've been going through this greatest, greatest stories ever told series. We've talked about a lot of great people in the faith, right? We've talked about Moses and how instrumental he was in delivering God's people. But at the end of the day, Moses is not the sacrificial lamb. Moses is not the one who dies that the people's sins may be forgiven. We talked about Josiah and how great he was, this boy king who, even at a young age, called people back to God, pointed people to remember his ways. But essentially, that's all he had to offer was to say, hey, let's remember and look back at how, God great, how great God is. Josiah himself is not the answer, just someone pointing people back to God to remember how great he is. You look at the story of Esther, and you, you, you might think, like, well, man, we need more, more women like Esther who are so bold and so willing to, at great sacrifice and cost and risk to themselves, go before the king on behalf of the people to, to, to put themselves on the line for the sake of serving and saving everyone else. But then if you zoom out and you look at the story of Esther and all the, all the irony and the crazy things like Haman making these gallows for Mordecai, thinking, I'm going to get this guy, and then all of a sudden they switch places and Mordecai is the one being, being praised and honored, and Haman is hanging on the gallows he created for someone else. It becomes so clear that the only way any of that happens is by God's sovereign hand guiding and orchestrating the whole thing. 
So as we close, I just want to remind us this Christmas season that the best thing we could do is point people to Jesus. And I know that's a little cliche, right? It's something you kind of expect to hear around Christmas time. Hey, let's not forget about Jesus, the manger, you know, this is it. It's not about the trees and the presents, but it's, but we need to hear it, right? Like, because it can be tempting to focus our minds so much on everything else that I want to be the hero, like I want to be the dad that gives the best presents, that hosts the best party, that shows up and makes the family thing fun. Like, you know, we look forward to this, look forward to that, we want to do this. And if we're not careful in the midst of it, we, we could easily miss the fact that the best thing we could do for our kids, for our family, for ourselves, is point to and remember Jesus. That the reason we do all of this is because unto you, a son is given. Unto you, a child is born. That Jesus is a gift to us. In this season, we should be celebrating him, thinking about him, remembering him. So let's pray. God, I pray that we would do that. Even on the Sunday mornings as we look at all these stories surrounding Jesus, that they would be things that help us see and remember this great gift that you've given to us by sending Jesus to come as a baby, that he is truly a gift to us. He is our Jesus. He is our Savior that you, that you re- released and let go of and sent to come and be with us and take the penalty for our sins to bring us back to you. God, would you help us to focus on that and would that awaken our hearts to praise you? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.